businessman, friend, father, Tansy, Lord Tanswell, the housewife's choice, Bobby the Bear Trap, Steve Tanswell. We love you, we miss you, and thank you. Hello everybody and welcome to another, because of the way we recorded this, I will have had COVID and then got rid of it and then got COVID again, episode of Pottywood. I am one of your co-hosts, Steve Hester, and with me as always is... That is such a bullshit way to start the Christmas episode of Pottywood. So <laughs> I'm going to reword that for you. Okay, go ahead. Now, my name is Andrew Roger Carson and Merry Christmas everybody apart from steve the miserable tit it's just droning on about covid while we're all trying to have a nice time the problem is this being the british nation we will all be droning on about covid it's part of what we do we find something to complain about and then we latch onto it yeah well uh, unfortunately it's it's one of those things it has affected us this this entire season has been kind of the ill season it has Because straight after we did Barbara Couples episode, I started coming down with this really, really bad cold uh, that turned into a really, really bad infection. Uh, And God, you'll hear over the various past episodes of how terrible it actually was. (laughs) (laughs) So continuity is a bitch on this show, I'm telling you. Oh, the amount of um, coughing of yours I had to cut out over this series has just been insane. Well, unfortunately, we we had a, a mention on Patrick Reynolds' episode mm-hmm. where someone actually said you guys were so stoned at the beginning of that. <laughs> I wish. And, <laughs> yes. Uh, don't we wish. Uh, I'm going to clear the record on that straight away. No. I was on incredibly hard antibiotics, which knocked me out. But I was there like, you know what? We still need to get this show out. We've committed to it. And we'll do it. I did not feel up to doing it. So whenever Steve would make me laugh, I had a really raspy cough and I couldn't stop laughing. And you're lucky that Steve actually edited out the parts where I'm practically coughing up a lung. (laughs) So no, we we weren't stoned. We are actually professionals at what we do on this show. Um, Yeah, professionals hides whiskey. Yes. Yes. Well, if we had a whiskey in front of us, that's a different story because it is bloody freezing in this country at the moment and it's dank and miserable and it's foggy outside. It looks like Silent Hill. So Merry yes. Christmas. So Merry <laughs> Christmas. So to the people that believed that we were actually stoned at the beginning of Patrick's episode, no, we were not. It was just one of those episodes where everything was going wrong at the beginning. We were both feeling rough. And we committed to it and got the beginning of it recorded. So, yes, um, with that in mind, uh, it's a very special Christmas week. We've got Merry Santa himself, John Ashton, going to be popping in later. Oh, yes. But before we get on to that visitor, let's talk about the other visitor. 
And that would be the what's in the box from last week, Steve. Yes. Now, before we do get into the actual movie, which is called The Visitor, which is a 2007 movie from uh, director Tom McCarthy, um, I just want to note something else that came up when I when I put The Visitor into IMDb. And you can check this yourself. I am not making this up. There is a page on IMDb for a film called The Visitor from Planet Omicron. You are shitting me. I am not. Oh my God. I am looking at it right now. It looks like a terrible movie that someone's made in their garage for about a fiver. Um, It's from 2013. (laughs) Oh my God. This is actually... Sally Kirkland's in it. No, no, no. This this gets better. An alien comes to Earth with a botanical virus, but a gutsy Arizona widow wins him over with her garden fresh cooking and then tries to topple a corrupt government that put him up to it. Oh my God. Is that just like a poster child for the anti-vax movement right there? Or is that just me? <laughs> Some it's housewife in Arizona going, no, no, you don't need to get any of them there antibiotics. I don't know what this accent is. You don't need no. to get... This movie was from 2013. Yeah. And it... What? This has just blown my mind. Do it. I cannot believe this. Go on to IMDb. Look up The Visitor from Planet Omicron. It looks Um, just dreadful. And for you people who have Roku, or more specifically the the TV uh, channel Plex, you can actually watch it on Plex, which has... That's just absolutely nuts. Isn't it? That was... That's very nuts. Oh, I don't know how we can recover from that. But anyway, let's go and talk about the movie that you were supposed to watch. Yeah, it's a good job I was recording that. Um, right. Yeah. Well, The Visitor is, like I say, it's a 2007 movie by a guy called Tom McCarthy. It was also written by Tom McCarthy. Um, it's about a, a rather staid, kind of boring uh, academic called Walter, played by Richard Jenkins, who comes back to uh, his New York apartment to stay a few days while delivering a, a talk at a conference and finds out that this couple have moved in with no kind of idea of who the hell he is. And then the, the three of them start to form this friendship. Now, it's could have gone a lot of ways with a premise like that. You know, you get the feeling that if someone like Jim Carrey had gone into that even though i know that he has done an awful lot of drama you could see that being like quite a zany comedy something that was a bit off the wall you could also see it being used as the basis for some kind of horror film as well but in this case it's actually quite a low-key warm character study of these three people and how they're each affecting each other's lives because you've got, um, like I say, you've got Richard Jenkins as Walter, who's recovering from the death of his wife. Then you've got uh, Has Lehman, Sliman, I'm not sure how you, how you pronounce his surname as Tarek, and then as his uh, girlfriend Danai Gurira. Yes, who many people will know as Okoye in the Black Panther and uh, the later Avengers movies. Yes. Now, one of the most kick-ass females I've ever seen on screen. It terrifies oh, yes. me. Um, and Walter starts to open up, particularly to Tarek, and they start to share this love of music and drums. And then partway through the movie, due to a tiny, tiny little incident in New York subway station, 
Tarek is found to be an illegal immigrant and is taken away to a detention centre. I like more than anything else of the fact that it didn't suddenly pull anything bigger than that out from its bag. Because this was 2007. This was obviously six years after 9-11. So they could have gone down, oh, he was actually a wanted terrorist route, or they were plotting something else, an attack. No, everything in this feels low-key, it feels real, and it feels earned. It doesn't need the stakes to be any higher. The stakes are the stakes are realistic, and for many people, realistic can just be something as simple as wanting to stay in one place. And yes. I I really enjoyed it. Which, if you look at the way that I reacted to Shotgun Stories a few weeks ago, and that had a very low key performance with low key stakes, but. With this, there seems to be an awful lot more heart and emotion, not just from Richard Jenkins' character as Walter, who does seem like a fish out of water a few times, but particularly with Tarek, and he just seems to have this warmth for life, and it is infectious, and you know, there's many scenes of him and Walter playing in a drum circle in Central Park, which just kind of it, it taps into something that's very kind of nice and primal and human which I liked, and it was something that I thought Shotgun Stories was missing. It was too too flat. But this... Too vague for you. It, yeah, you know, you need you need to have the yin to go with the yang. If it's all one-sided, then it loses any of the brightness, and if it's too bright, then it loses any of the darkness. And as far as this is oh. concerned, I think that the, the performances were, were really nice across the board. Um, let's not forget um, Haim... Abbas, I'm sorry if I'm uh, yeah. butchering these names. I really am. Um, yeah, another another fantastic performance. Yeah, who plays uh, Tarek's mother? And this little this little group, this tiny little ensemble group, just plays so nicely with each other. There are, like I say, there are no elevated stakes. There's nothing that is at risk apart from these individuals' lives and what they mean to each other and how we are as human beings one humanity. And that uh, what we do as a government or as a nation doesn't necessarily reflect who we are as the people of that nation. And I know I really like this movie. I thought I thought it was quite touching, and it just made me yearn to go back to New York again. Just seeing it like that, I thought it was I thought it was a really enjoyable and warm film. It is, and um, you know, to uh, Tom McCarthy. I mean, obviously, a lot of people know him as the writer of stuff like Spotlight. Mm-hmm. More prominently, and, he, and he's a, a producer as well on such movies like Win Win, which is an incredible uh, movie, really good. I, I love the way that he really explores the kind of contrast of Richard Jenkins is amazing in this movie. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of Richard Jenkins, and I always have been. And seeing him actually stepping up and not being a supporting character, but actually being, you know, center stage is amazing, and it's just a wonderful dynamic. And it's a wonderfully yeah, told it story. I, 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 it is just a, a real film. You come away glad you watched. Yeah, even though the, the ending, uh, spoilers, even though the ending of it isn't what you hope it will be, it feels like it's what it should be. You, you want it to be something more. You want there to be this this wonderful, happy ending. But in reality, that's not really what will happen. And uh, and I think even even in spite of that, there's also a lot of a uh, lot of heartfelt nature to it. And yeah, Richard Jenkins 
there were times when I thought that he was channeling Jack Nicholson in about Schmidt, that kind of very almost almost blank expression that's just going around with the craziness. But then there are these little moments like where he's trying to explain about his writing over dinner and you can see the facade just ever so slightly break down and he kind of reels it back in and you get the feeling that there's a man that underneath that that's dealing with an awful lot of pain yeah it is it's true compliment to a brilliantly written script mm-hmm. brilliantly written story and uh, i've got full praise for the visitor i think you know as a movie that you had never even heard of before no. i brought it up i'm glad you've actually found some real enjoyment from it yeah well i i've I've noticed this on a few of the moves, and you say that I usually end up slagging off a lot of the movies which we get through, and that's not entirely true. I try to be as objective as possible, and sometimes that means picking up on things which I shouldn't do. Um, but I have noticed it with the, with a few of the movies that I've seen where I kind of stop taking notes and just start watching the film. And I think this was one of those movies where I did just stop taking notes after a while. And, uh, and just enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's really good. So would you uh, recommend The Visitor? Is it worthy of its freshness? Yes, yes. I don't think it's going to be particularly uh, enjoyable if you are too heavily into your action movies. If you think that The Fast and Furious 9 is the pinnacle of cinema, then you're probably not going to enjoy the slow pace of this. But if you can sit down and just enjoy the humanity of it, then yeah, yeah, you'll definitely enjoy it. Okay. Can't say fairer than that. Mm-mm. Well, I guess before we wheel in our returning guest, we have a couple of anniversaries to speak of. We watch them again all of the time, or we get them on Prime for free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. And doesn't a Western theme go so well for Christmas week? I know it does. We, need... we should have at least recorded at least one Christmas tune. What, should we just do it the way that they do it in a lot of TV shows where they just have the ordinary tune, but they have someone playing with sleigh bells over the top of it? Yeah. yeah. If we can get a mix where we can just get some sleigh bells over that Western theme that doesn't sound like stirrups, <laughs> you know, I guess we'll be all right. Anyway. Uh, we actually have five this week. Five. All oh, right. Let's five. Uh, let's crack on then. Okay. Can you believe, Steve, mm-hmm. that forty years ago this week, a movie known as Rollover was released? You've never heard of it. No, no I haven't. haven't. No, I haven't. No. Rollover was directed by Alan J. Pakula, who some may know as the director of uh, Sophie's Choice, All the President's Men, or Presumed Innocent, if you preferred the nineties. And it was a movie that starred Jane Fonda as uh, she was the wife of this murdered petrochemical chairman. And she teams up with a banker who's played by Chris Christopherson. uh, And they investigate how it all links to some financial scheme that is leaning towards a global economic collapse. And this was in 1981. Uh. And it's incredibly relevant. I've watched it again this past week. And I was like, oh, my God, this, this was, like, really current stuff for a movie that was done 40 years ago. Right. So at any point in that, do they get lots of people into a bed and the little one says roll over? Uh, no. Okay. But in a way, it was a flop. It was a box office flop. 
it was a shame because it was the second flop for Chris Christopherson after the Heaven's Gate fiasco. Oh, yeah. Uh, this, this was produced by Jane Fonda about when she was uh, starting to produce movies. I think this might have been maybe the third of her five produced movies over that period. Because I know the China Syndrome was one, and I think that was before this. And, and this was another one, and I think they went on to do On Golden Pond as well. Uh, and they're all brilliant movies, but this one just, it wasn't a hit at the time. And I think it was following in the trend of those movies like uh, The Parallax View and um, the, oh, God, I've forgotten the name of it. There's a, there's a few of these paranoid conspiracy thrillers back in the day, mature yeah, kind of like, uh, type of movies. Day of the Condor but, or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah Day of the Condor, um, or Three Days of the Condor, even. Three Days of the Condor, yeah. That had a small cameo from Bill Davey, apparently. Really? Yes, but apparently he's out of shot. But, uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, you sorry, just Bill. It, really. no. sorry, Bill, but that won't be Bill. Um, but yeah, uh, one of the biggest stories I think I remember from this was Alan J. Pecula. And we, we were talking um, on next week's episode, you'll hear we talk about the infamous Gene Hackman, Richard Donner mustache incident. Well, on this one, there was one with Alan J. Pecula and Chris Christopherson, because Chris Christopherson really wanted to keep his beard, his iconic beard. And Alan J. Pecula was like, nope, you got to shave it. And he's like, well, I don't want to shave it. So Alan J. Pecula said, okay, if you can find any banker who has a beard like that and provide proof, I'll let you keep it. And Chris Christopherson couldn't find one, so he shaved it. <laughs> <laughs> it's also known as the Fokker defense, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but yes, Rollover. Uh, it's a really good film, actually. It is a really good film. It's one worthy of uh, rediscovering. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised by it. I, I think I had seen it many, many years ago. I think it was on BBC One uh, when it f- first kind of came out on terrestrial TV and didn't really understand it back then. But oh my God, you understand it even more nowadays. So that's his role over at 40. Can you believe, Steve, this is more up your alleyway. You were. 35 years ago this week, The Golden Child was released. Ah, you're right. This is more my uh, more my alley. I like this movie. And this was a bit of a flop well, as well, wasn't it, if I remember correctly? It was not a flop. It was a hit. I mean, this was Eddie Murphy's first movie back for two years because it kind of took two years off after Beverly Hills Cop and uh, came back with The Golden Child, if I'm right. I believe so. And Eddie trashed this movie. He did When he was doing press for Coming to America, he really trashed it, saying, oh, you know, the script was so much better than the movie. And I think he they pinned a lot of the blame on the director, Michael Ritchie, who was a great director. He directed Fletch. You know, he was also the writer of Cool Runnings, which is just an iconic movie. Mm. But... Originally, the director was going to be George Miller. Oh, of Mad Max fame. Of Mad Max fame. Yes. Yes. The story goes, according to George Miller, he he showed up to Eddie Murphy's house to talk about it, and Eddie kept him waiting for four hours, and George Miller said, fuck this, and left. (laughs) But what's also interesting about it is it was also originally supposed to be a Mel Gibson movie instead of an Eddie Murphy movie. Mel Gibson was uh, approached, uh, apparently he then turned it down. So I wonder if this was going to be like the first American Mel Gibson, George Miller type movie. 
I think there's also a bit of truth in the fact that John Carpenter was also approached. And you can kind of see that because it does have a very John Carpenter-style feel to it. It does. It's got that almost kind of big trouble in Little China kind of... And the music is very John Carpenter-y as well. (laughs) The other interesting thing about this is uh, Eddie Murphy turned down a role in Star Trek IV The Voyage Home to do this movie. Really? Really. Apparently he was going to be this little green glowing rock that talks to Spock throughout the movie. (laughs) You may laugh. I guarantee you that was on the cards. But... um, so yeah, uh, the Golden Child. It's it's one of those cult movies that it's not very good. You know, it's not a really good movie. I watched it again recently. It was like mm. this is kind of full of holes, really. But at the same time, they've got a goof, like an outtake or um, a bluffed line, I should say, from Charles Dance that they leave in the movie. Which one's that? And it's where he's trying to say "Ayanti Dagger," and Charles Dance pauses after he says "I" because he's going to screw it up. He goes. I want the Ayanti dagger. And they left it in. Clearly left it in. Mm. And that has always stuck with me about this movie, apart from the fact that you've got the ever-reliable James Hong in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Randall Tex like, Cobb as well, who was just Randall in pretty Tech much Cobb. all of those movies in the 80s. Oh, yeah, he was. And uh, in the uh, Hell's Angels biker scene, the... Um, biker that gets beat up by Eddie Murphy for information was Michael Douglas's brother, which is very apparent when you actually watch the scene again. Because it's like, how could you not tell that that is not his brother? <laughs> to be honest, it's been a while since I've seen this, so I'm going to have to go back and rewatch it. Yeah, and uh, the standout was uh, Charlotte Ray, absolutely beautiful Tibetan beauty, uh, who's only 18 years old, which is very weird when you look at it, because she looks a lot older, mm. but um, her acting is not the greatest in it. I think she's dubbed. I, I don't know why, but when I was actually watching it, I was like, she sounds like she's been dubbed in some scenes, especially. Mm. But uh, The Golden Child for me, um, I think it's a guilty pleasure for me because I admit that it's not a great movie, but I still own it. Um, yeah. I don't know what the fascination with that is. This was like the movie, or one of the movies, before Eddie Murphy started adopting that really fast-talking Eddie Murphy style that then was just everywhere. You know, he was still very subdued and talking at his normal pace. And then for Beverly Hills Cop 2, suddenly he was like fast-talking all the time. I think we had touched on this before. Yeah, we did yeah. when, um, funnily enough, when John was on the first time. Yeah, actually. Yeah. <laughs> funnily wow. enough. Um but yeah, this was the movie before uh, Beverly Hills Cop 2 and him becoming like the biggest box office star in Hollywood at the time. I, I don't think that's an exaggeration. I think Eddie Murphy was the number one. It's hard to envision anyone else around that time frame who was. Okay. So yeah, uh, The Golden Child is 35 years old this week. Can you believe, Steve? I don't know. 25 years ago this week, and this mm-hmm. is still fresh in the memory, Star Trek First Contact was released. Oh, yes, yes. I've seen that one. I like that yes. one. No glowing rock in it, but, <laughs> no. you know. <laughs> no, but this is Patrick uh, Stewart going nuts with a Tommy gun. Yes. Uh, no freewheeling uh, William Shatner going down a ravine. This a was the first outing. Yeah, that's fine. Yes. No feather. Yes, exactly. Directed by Jonathan Frakes, who we all know as Will Riker, mm-hmm. who we all also know as director of Thunderbirds. Who we also know is that 
fact or fiction show on TV where was it magicians revealing their tricks? Oh no, that was a different one. No, on the on the magicians tricks one, that was Mitch Pileggi from uh, the X Files. Oh my God! Yeah, it was Mitch. Yeah, Pileggi. I'm Mitch Pileggi. That's how you say your name. Yes, <laughs> I was calling you Pileggi for so long. I'm Mitch Pileggi. You hear that, Pileggi? Write it down yeah. phonetically, Pileggi. But well, this was the movie that introduced the Borg to the big screen. Mm-hmm. Um, just the amazing turn by Alice Krieg mm-hmm. from Sleepwalkers, funnily enough. And she was iconic as the Borg Queen, you know, really amazing, really seductive. There's some nice little cameos in there. There's no Whoopi Goldberg, strangely enough, but we do get Murdoch from the A-Team. Yes, because he was in the series um, as Reginald Barkley. Barkley, that's the guy. Yeah, And uh, funnily enough, speaking of Alice Creek, she came back towards the end of um, Voyager's run and she re- reprised the role of the Borg Queen. Don't ask me how or why, considering it was a completely different person that got taken over, but, yeah. So she came back for that one. Right. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I know that all of those Borg sets uh, that were used, they, I mean, they were never really happy with the ones in the uh, the Next Generation series because, you know, they all kind of looked a bit tacky. But when they, The ones they used for this movie actually got used moving forward in all of the Star Trek series. So the sets and the costumes and all that were used. And there was a big switch in this movie, actually, because originally it was actually supposed to be Patrick Stewart helping James Cromwell and all that on the ground. And it was supposed to be Jonathan Frakes. You know, it was supposed to be Will Riker on the Enterprise doing that role. And I can't uh, see that somehow. Yeah, but um, it was it was Patrick Stewart who objected to it. And uh, basically told her to swap it around. So Picard gets to be the action hero, which is strange considering Jonathan Frakes is directing it. But maybe it worked out better that way for Jonathan Frakes directing because I think it was his first movie as well. Yeah. I think he directed parts of the TV series. Yeah, he had um, done. Yeah. So, no, that makes that um, makes sense because if it is going to be your first major uh, feature film, then you want to be behind the camera as much as you can. And and not only that, but given the the storyline with Picard and the Borg in the TV series, having him go up against it makes a lot more sense because it's the stakes are more personal then. Yeah, yeah, very true. And I think all of the cast actually preferred this one. I think they said this was their favorite movie to make, and this is the most action packed Star Trek movie I think out of all of them. Uh, Before J.J. Abrams, at least. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I couldn't see that because of all the lens flares. But uh, <laughs> it's amazing how many lens flares is in one movie. I would have failed film school if I'd have done that. Yeah, if you want to recreate the joys of watching the original J.J. Abrams Star Trek film, then just listen to the Star Trek theme on Spotify while shining a lamp into your face. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go on the record here. I love this movie. I, I really so did. And... Um, it is one of the seminal Star Trek movies you can actually put on for people who aren't Star Trek fans, and they'd enjoy it. Mm. Um, you know, I think Patrick Stewart is great in it. Alice Krieg's great in it. Brent Spiner, Data, is great in it. And it's just fun. You know, yeah. this was before it got sexed up and all stuff like that, but this was actually fun. And it still holds up today. Um, if this was on on Christmas Day, I'd watch it. Oh, yeah, very happily. 
Very but something I wouldn't watch, Steve. Hmm. Can you believe 10 years ago this week, Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows was released? Ah, oh, you're not a fan of this one? No, I, I don't know. It's yeah, it's, it's not a Guy Ritchie thing, right? It is not a Guy Ritchie, because I really like a lot of Guy Ritchie's stuff. It's a studio-mandated sequel that Guy Ritchie just happened to be directing. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I, so. Basically, yeah. I mean, some people say it's better than the first one. And I think it's it's just as good in the fact that I didn't enjoy either of them. <laughs> it's got so bad, it's like you could easily paint Doolittle as the third Sherlock Holmes movie. Um, uh, and I know a lot was put in, obviously, because of all of this slow motion work that was put in. Uh, done by Gavin Free, by the way, yeah. who worked for Rooster Teeth, the, the slow-mo guys on YouTube. Yeah. Little free shout out for you there. So those the bits will be do look then. really, really good. They do, and it—I don't know what it is about it. I mean, it was—it was fast tracked, all right. From what I understand, Warner Brothers did fast track the sequel. I'm, I'm sure Bill would corroborate if that was right or not. And it, it forced Guy Ritchie to drop out of directing Lobo, uh, which would have been awesome. And Robert Downey Jr. had to drop out of Cowboys and Aliens, which would have helped with that movie, in my view. I don't know. It it just didn't do anything for me. And Sherlock Holmes, you can either take him or leave him. I still say that the 1983 version of The Hand of the Baskervilles was one of the best Sherlock Holmes things I ever saw with Martin Chora and Denham Elliott. Um, <laughs> but um, I don't know about... Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows. It it just yeah, it just I, didn't click with me. I'm a I'm a bit of a fan of the the original stories. Um, I, yeah. Just recently, I was, I was listening, re-listening to Stephen Fry narrate the entire um, Holmes canon on audiobook, which is just it hogs heaven. Listening to that, going to uh, going to and fro in the car, it was just being wonderful. But I think the one thing which got me about both of these movies is that they kind of feel like Sherlock Holmes fan fiction. Yes, that's that's actually a good yeah, way to put it. I mean, they they take little tiny tiny elements from the original stories, like there's a brief shot of Holmes as as uh, as, as syringe, his little uh, cocaine. It's a cocaine syringe. He doesn't use heroin. He uses cocaine because that was back when he used to inject cocaine. Um, but there's nothing really that makes it Holmes apart from the fact that he has all these deductive powers. Yeah, and it it doesn't it doesn't feel like Holmes. It doesn't really look properly Victorian either. It's kind of the stylized idea of what someone would think the Victorian period should be, and it just it doesn't work well. No, and to be honest, I blame it for that version of King Arthur that came out afterwards. <sighs> I saw that when I was in Mexico and I went in with zero expectations and came out thinking, eh. Well, at least it lived up to your expectations. Yeah. But it's also responsible for that bloody Taranagan version of Robin Hood. Yeah. Which I... should have been... Whoever greenlit that should be taken outside and set on fire. Mm. That, that was horrible. It, it was just horrible. And to be honest, we weren't exactly crying out for another Robin Hood. And I suppose the good news is we'll never, ever get another one. 
thanks no. to that. The sad you news know, is we also Prince... won't get that um, Sheriff of Nottingham version that was supposed to be doing the rounds before Ridley Scott did his one. Oh, they were going to do a Sheriff of Nottingham one with um, Rickman. No, the whole idea was that instead of it being um, like like a traditional Robin Hood movie, they were going to be doing it for all from the Sheriff of Nottingham's point of view, and he was kind of like trying to catch a killer. And uh, Robin Hood was there in the background and he was like the chief suspect. And then as time went on, it turned out that he wasn't actually the killer. And then the two of them joined forces to work out who was the killer. And then Scott came in with um, Russell Crowe and just went, no, no, let's get rid of all that. Let's get rid of all that. Let's just make it into a, uh, let's just make it into a a Robin Hood. There you go. I'm from Yorkshire, I sound like I'm from London. And wasn't that a joy? Hmm. That, that uh, That was kind of underwhelming. Uh, that version of Robin Hood. So I, mean, I actually went to see that on the same day I went to see Iron Man 2 and I can't believe that I walked out with Iron Man 2 as the better movie. Yeah. But in fairness, I, Iron Man 2 is Iron Man 2. You know what you're getting with that, with Robin Hood. I think a lot of people were just saying, oh, we've got Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves as the best like Robin Hood that we can all envision. I was like, no, it's not. How Do you know Errol Flynn? Have you watched The Adventures of Robin Hood? Because, you know, that film that dates far back, where the action is speeded up so fast in those fight scenes, it looks like Errol Flynn is speeding his tits off. The <laughs> uh, good thing, though, about that Kevin Costner one was Alan Rickman. Yeah. Oh, yes. I'm going to cut your heart out with a spoon. It comes to something when the last good Robin Hood movie was Robin Hood Men in Tights. <laughs> <laughs> and it was. I don't care what anyone says. That That is the last time I have enjoyed a Robin Hood movie. Um, you know, there's also that version out there with Patrick Bergen in that came out in the same year as yeah. Prince of Thieves and got absolutely buried. Nobody remembers that one. Five people saw it, and it was filmed at Beeston Castle, of all places. Where? Beeston Castle and Peck Thornton Castle, they filmed that movie. Good. Because I remember, yeah, and I remember someone at school was basically saying, uh, oh, yeah, uh, we saw Kevin Costner and all that, the film in Robin Hood, and I was like, you lying sack of shit. That's the wrong movie. <laughs> you saw Patrick Bergen. You saw Uma Thurman for five minutes, although you, you don't know who she is. It's like that uh, 1492, uh, which was um, the one about Christopher Columbus absolutely burying another movie called Christopher Columbus, The Discovery, that had Marlon yeah. Brando in it, released the same year. That's when uh, the movie's competing... Two movies compete in the same year. You know, it's the, the Bugs Life uh, Ants effect. God, you can tell how really into the Sherlock Holmes movies we were that we've gone completely off topic and started talking about Robin Hood. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather watch Robin Hood than Sherlock Holmes. I'll tell you. Uh, it just didn't do it for me. I, I don't know. Getting back to Sherlock Holmes, you know, there's no mystery that it, I'm not a fan. There you go. Case closed. What's next, Watson? Well, I'll tell you what's next. Uh, something I think we would appreciate because it is 30 years ago this week that the Adams family was released. Raul Julia's personal favourite role of all time. Yes. What a flick. Yes. And there's never been a better Gomez Adams than uh, Raul Julia. Uh, it was also uh, Barry Sonnenfeld's first movie, though. Was it his first? I think that was his first, yeah. Yeah, and obviously he directed the, in my view, far superior Adam's Family Values. 
I actually prefer the second one than the first one. Because mm. uh, it's, you know, the first one's dark, but the second one's just really dark. It's all about trying to murder a baby. <laughs> you know, how much dark can you get for a kid's movie? You know, as well as, you know, a woman just like trying to murder her new spouse. It's dark as hell and has some of the, the greatest jokes yeah. in it. But the the idea for um, the Adams family being remade around this time was uh, all down to Scott Rudin. Uh, Scott Rudin was the head of production at 20th Century Fox at the time, and the story goes that he was riding in a van uh, with a bunch of other uh, executives from the company after a movie screening, and apparently uh, one of them started singing the theme tune, and every single one of them suddenly started humming along to it or singing to it, and then. The idea, the light bulb went off. They all kind of looked at each other, I guess. And then the next day, they proposed that they make a movie, and they all went and did it. Well, there we go. And that is the story. And it's it's so well done. I, I remember I I went to see this at the cinemas, uh, not knowing what to expect because the Adams family wasn't really big in my growing up. No, I mean, I didn't get to see the TV series until after the film had come out and it started to get repeated on BBC. Yeah, it started going around on Channel 4. Wherever it was, yeah. And you know what it makes like the prime time at 6 o'clock? You know, they're expecting something big of it. No, it was it was just a really fun movie. There was some fantastic jokes in it. And uh, it, it's it had the game that came out that was questionable. <laughs> Did you mean the one for the snares? <laughs> yes. Oh, God, Not only yeah. was it on the snares, I had it on the Amiga. That's how far back it goes. Oh, Ocean Entertainment, which oh, yes. were actually based in Manchester. Were they really? They were, yeah. yeah. They were pretty oh, much... Well, of, co- of course you'd know that. They operated more or less on a quantity over quality uh, thing, so they just snapped up as many licenses as they could do. You know, Robocop, Terminator, um, Lethal Weapon, and they just... Sh- shat out as many subpar games as they possibly could do. Oh yes, they did a, they did do a lot. I know that they had, before Angelica Houston, I think Olivia Hussey was going to be the original choice and it would be great to have Olivia come on and actually confirm that. I know she is on my Facebook, she knows of these episodes so you can let us know. I think Cher really lobbied for that role as well. Yeah, I can see which, that. Strangely enough, would have worked. Mm. But you know she would have wanted to sing a song for the soundtrack. And you know, they, things must have been really right, bad the if they choose. The feed, dude. <laughs> you know things had to be bad if they went with MC Hammer over Cher. Know. You know? <laughs> the last thing MC Hammer ever did, apart from that Hammer Man cartoon. Um, Anthony Hopkins also turned down the role of Uncle Fester, do you know? I did not know that, no. No. Which might have been the smartest move, considering that he was doing Silence of the Lambs right around this time, and was about to win an Oscar. Yes, that would have made it a little bit too creepy. He needed the manic energy of Christopher Lloyd to kind of counterbalance that craziness. And I think and... just going, ah, hello, Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> I've got your doll's head, Wednesday. Just pushes it <laughs> over the top a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, just a little bit. Also, in speaking of Barry Sonnenfeld, he had to do a little um, the cameo, cameo, yeah. yeah, on the model train set. I was wondering if you were going to pick up on that. Oh yeah, I knew about that one. Yeah, 
but yes, um, he has that little cameo of looking out the window and seeing like Gomez Adams just <laughs> laughing. Uh, it's brilliant. Um, and, and considering it was his first movie, I know that he felt a tremendous amount of pressure because you know it's it's a it was a big movie, mm. and he was also kind of dealing with um, I think it was sciatica. I think he had sciatica during when he was actually filming. Oh, oh, I can, oh, I can sympathise with that one. Yeah, and uh, as well as dealing with that, I know that he did actually end up having to shut the movie down for a couple of days, which must have been terrifying for him because his wife needed a major surgery in New York City and he had to go and, and do that. You imagine that on your first movie, having all that pressure. You're already in agony. Um, you're concerned about the budget of the movie because it was a huge budget for a first time movie and and then you've got to go and do that and you know what he did an amazing job of it yeah proper bang up job yeah and i think his agent was uh barry sonnenfeld's agent must have been really relieved that he didn't have to lick that carpet oh do you not know the story i don't know that story now okay barry sonnenfeld's agent basically said to barry that he would lick a carpet if he couldn't get him a directing job within the year. Ah. And uh, so he managed to find him this job in less than a year. Good. Good. So Scott Rudin apparently uh, let it be known to Sonnenfeld that he wasn't the first choice, as he was kind of putting a different director's name on the back of the chair every morning. So you had everyone from like Joe Dante, Terry Gilliam, of course, David Lynch, which would have been a weird one. And of course... You can't escape the Adams family without Tim Burton's name coming up because for a long time I actually thought it was a Tim Burton movie until it's I realized it's got that look and feel to it, just all over it, hasn't it? Exactly. And what's interesting now, I mean, we've got Rob Zombie remaking The Monsters, uh, which is coming out, I think, next year. And that's going to be interesting because it's all just going to be rape and death and <laughs> drugs and people getting their head blown off. <laughs> and it's like, geez. Who's doing the groovy ghoulies? That's I what know. I want to know. Probably the same people that did that um, Banana Splits movie. Oh, I've heard about that. I've not seen it yet. Yeah, me neither. It's like it's like a kid's cartoon where they're being people are getting ripped apart and like, cut in half by carnival games and stuff like that. And it's proper like splatterfest. But he's got yeah. these Hanna-Barbera cartoon characters in it. It's like, what the hell? You might, might also interesting to know this was among the last handful of movies that Orion Pictures did. It basically started the financial troubles for the studio right when this was going, which is why Orion ended up getting sold to MGM. Right. And also the reason probably why, and I think Paramount had a bit of co-financing in the movie, but this movie has never been released on DVD in the UK ever. Now we've we've discussed this one in the past. It's been yes. released over here. It wasn't released in North America. It wasn't. Re- it wasn't available over here because I searched for it everywhere, and the only I've get was seen it on DVD. Values. I've seen it on the shelves in HMV. Oh well, th- this is a, a source of debate. Yes. But yes, Adams Family was released thirty years ago this week, as well as the Razzie Award-winning. MC Hammer song of Adam's Groove. <laughs> Too legit to quit. <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah. Oh, God. Oh, that song's going to haunt me tonight. Yeah. Um, 
And yeah, it's not as good as Adam's Family Values, in my view. Well, there's your view. I mean, that's that's the five anniversaries this week, yeah. and I think it is time to bring in an old favourite to the show, making his third appearance. This is a record, uh, I think. I think he's the record holder as this being the third appearance to talk about the 1990s. Well, no, he's, he's coming up against Bill now. Well, we better let him in. Well, it's Christmas week, and we look for the gift that keeps on giving, or in our case, uh, the guest that keeps on coming back, which we really like. And no, it's not Bill Daly, although we send out our love to Bill Daly. Our most well-received guest in the history of Pottywood so far has been John Ashton, who we've covered an extensive career only up until the end of the 80s so far for two previous episodes. And upon those episodes being released, everyone just wants more of the Ashton. So we listened and we decided that our 2021 end Christmas special with John talk about his time in the 1990s. And uh, when we left off, we just discussed Midnight Run, which Steve actually watched for the first time last night. Didn't yep. you, Steve? I did, yes. Yep. Hugely popular favourite with everyone. And John was about to enter the 1990s and a diverse range of roles to follow. So once again, joining us this Christmas week in Colorado... Welcome back, John Ashton. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Andrew. And happy, uh, Merry Christmas and uh, happy holidays. And whatever holiday you're celebrating, have a good time doing it. Oh, yes. Right. We're all off to number 10 Downing Street later. Yes. <laughs> you hear that, Boris? <laughs> no, it's really, really good to have you back, John. Um, Andy's absolutely right. We had a ton of great feedback from the first time that you came on and uh, we just couldn't wait to get you back on and just well, that's great that's great well you know i had a good time with you guys and we uh talked about a lot of good stuff i think and uh i'm uh happy to be back well as i say it's good to have you because obviously uh, from what we know you have been a little bit ill this uh past month uh practically throughout november kind of like myself uh but you actually uh kind of caught pneumonia uh, on your return back from your Comic Con appearance, so are you all right now? Is everything in the clear? Well, I'm about eighty percent. Yeah, I'm a little weak still, but uh, all the pneumonia is all cleared up, and uh, I had some bleeding ulcers, and uh, I don't want to get into all of it. But uh, November was uh, not a very good month for me, and uh, I was in the hospital a few days, and uh, but they've got everything uh, taken care of, I think, and. Uh, and now I'm just trying to get my uh, strength and my energy back. So, uh, so far, so good. And I'm on the mend. So, uh, looking forward to uh, playing some more golf and doing some more movies and all that good stuff. And that... talking to you. And talking to you. <laughs> That's awesome, too. We're really, really glad that you've been able to come through to the other side of that one. <laughs> yeah. Going back to the con very briefly, you met with Ronnie Cox there, who... Uh, who played your captain in the Beverly Hills Cop movies. How was it uh, meeting up with him again? Well, it was great. You know, I mean, I see Judge a lot, you know, because we do some Comic-Cons over in Stuttgart and Edinburgh and London and all over the States and stuff. But uh, I I hadn't seen Ronnie in quite a while. So we had breakfast every morning and uh, he actually performed because he's doing a lot of country Western music now. And that's what he really is focusing on. And uh, it was great to see him. And he, he was supposed to do a show Saturday night. Uh, we had a bomb scare at the convention and we had to clear out the whole convention and stood out in the rain for two days. And uh, 
or for two hours, I mean, and maybe that's where I got my pneumonia. Who knows? But uh, anyway, uh, that probably that, was that yeah. kind of that kind of screwed up Ronnie's show. So uh, he was a little taken back by that. He because he was really looking forward to doing a performance, and uh, you know, during the two hours of rain, a lot of people left, and you know, so uh, it was it was too bad. But uh, yeah, Ronnie, you know, we told stories. And I saw Michael Beck and. I saw a bunch of old friends there, and uh, we had breakfast every morning and and chatted about our 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 lives and what we've been doing. And uh, like I say, Ronnie's just concentrating on his country music now. So, anyway, it was great great seeing everybody. Ronnie is probably the focus of the single worst piece of uh, TV censorship in history, with his uh, <laughs> thing of uh, Robocop on ITV oh my God. on British television back in the nineties. So. If nothing was... else, I think he's probably he's probably glad that that's not going on anymore. <laughs> that was you, you've got to explain this now for for all the viewers. But I think it was when it was on ITV, right? Yeah. And uh, the British standards would basically censor movies, but they would dub over the voices of any swearing with someone who sounds nothing like them. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> <laughs> nothing like them at all and ronnie cox has this scene with miguel ferrer in the bathroom this is yeah. the one you're talking about right yeah exactly yeah yeah it, they're, they're and in, uh they're in the bathroom and he's saying oh i would i used to call the old man names i used to call him he even once called him airhead and instead of arsehole, and it just sounds so wrong <laughs> to be honest as well john you've probably been dubbed over as well during uh during Beverly Hills Cop going on TV. Oh yeah, I re- I remember I was in uh, in France. I was in Paris in uh, 1989, I believe it was. I was doing a movie with Gerard Depardieu over there, and uh, the t- on the TV one night was uh, uh, you know some show. I can't even remember what show it was, but it was dubbed over with you know in French and stuff. And the guy didn't sound at all like me. I you know. It was a, but and, and he was speaking in French too, so I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. So he could have been saying anything. My lines could have been changed totally. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, it was kind of interesting. You know, one time I was in, I think, the south of France somewhere, and there was some Spanish television station and some show I was on, and they had some Spanish guy dubbing my voice, and it's kind of weird to watch that. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> well. As we ended um, the talk on the 80s, you'd come out of uh, Midnight Run and you took a role in a TV series called Hardball, uh, which was doing the odd couple police detective routine, this time with Richard Tyson as the beefcake and you as the uh, more straight-edge cop. And How did you go from being in all these hit movies and suddenly kind of back to a TV role partnering up on this kind of show? Well, strangely enough, uh, we were just talking about the film with Gerard Depardieu. I did that right after Midnight Run, and uh, uh, the director of the film in Paris. Uh, anyway, he wanted me to do this this film in France, and I played a an American film director in in the film, uh, Adolf Green, and uh, there were a lot of people, a lot of Americans in it. But anyway, uh, Midnight Run happened to open in in France in Paris at the at the time I was shooting over there. But it opened at the same time The Last Temptation of Christ opened. And there was a big brouhaha about The Last Temptation of Christ. Mm. And uh, I don't know if you remember that. but uh, Yeah, yeah. It, and they opened 
Midnight Run and The Last Temptation of Christ in the same theater in Paris. So I'm coming home from work. I'm coming home from work with my driver and I pull up to my street. I had an apartment right on the left bank and I see bonfires and police and everything all over the place in front of this theater. And I said, what's going on? And she said, well, they're protesting the last temptation of Christ and they're burning the film in the middle of the street. And it happened to be the same theater Midnight Run was playing in. So I went, oh, great, you know. So anyway, Gerard said to me, well, and they have a Deauville Film Festival with American Films. And Gerard asked me if I was going to it. And I said, well, I don't know. And anyway, I got in touch with a few people. So I ended up going to the Deauville Film Festival. And it was just me and De Niro and Marty Brest at the festival. And then they all came to Paris and we went out and had dinner there and had a great time. So I come back to the United States after all that. And my favorite getaway place was always Carmel up in Monterey Bay, uh, California, where Pebble Beach, because I'm a golfer. So I go up there and that's my getaway. When I finish a film, I used to always go up there and play golf for a week or two. Well, while I was there, my agent called and said, they want you to do this TV series. And I said, absolutely not. I, I have no desire to do a TV series. Well, you know how that goes. You know, every every two seconds, my phone was ringing and they upped the price and, you know, all this other stuff. And, and actually, I read the script and it wasn't bad. But I said, I'm not in, I, you know, I got a good film career going here and I'm not interested in doing a TV series. And they kept begging me, and it was went on for days, I'm telling you. And they wanted me to come back to L.A., and I said, no, I got a tea time tomorrow at 10 o'clock. I'm not coming back to L.A. <laughs> so anyway, they begged me, and they begged me, and they kept offering me more money and more this and more that. And and it was a guaranteed 13 episodes, and, and uh, NBC was like, uh, you know, they just wouldn't leave me alone. So I ended up after all was said and done and you know the money starts talking and uh, unfortunately it does and I, my son was four years old at the time and I thought well this will pay for his college and and blah you know and I kept thinking of all the practical reasons of doing this series and and uh, to tell you the truth I mean you when you do a television series, uh, Brian Dennehy, who was a good friend of mine, did a TV series uh, with him and a little kid, and uh, the, it got canceled after six or seven shows. I mean, uh, Hardball was, we were guaranteed 13 episodes, and we got great reviews, and, and everybody loved the show, but they were they put it on Friday night against Dallas, which was the number one show at the time, so we didn't have a prayer. But anyway, Brian De Brian Dennehy, you know, he's he had a good film career going. He he did this series and folded in his film career kind of. So he was on the Carson show one night and he said, "You know, when you do a TV series when it's over, I think they send you to a little island somewhere." <laughs> and he said I th he, he said I think Troy Donahue's the president of the island, you know. And and you know, that's Dennehy, he's funny. But it's true. I mean, you get done with, you know, there's a stigma about that, you know. And, uh, you know, if you do a TV series, you better have hope it goes five or eight years so you can put the money in the bank and live on it the rest of your life. Because your career makes a whole different change. I mean, I, you know, there's parts of me that wish I never did it, you know, because my film career was going so well then. And then it took me a long time to get back on track and, 
you know, get back into doing films and stuff. So, but uh, it's, it, you know, doing the TV series is, is feast or famine, you know? And if you do one yeah. and, it's, and it folds, then everybody thinks you're a, you're a failure, you know? And if you do one and it's a hit, then you're known for that show, you know? And you can't break away from it. It's sort of like being Taggart and Beverly Hills Cop. I mean, I can't break away from that. But, you know, I kind of <laughs> accept it and enjoy it. And, of course, you know, Judge and I would like to work together again, but nobody's ever going to hire us because as soon as they see us on film, they go, Taggart and Rosewood, you know, and they can't believe we'll be anybody else. So it's 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 sort of a, a twisty kind of turny thing doing a series and and, uh, you know, and, and I'm telling you, it was some tough work. I mean, we were working 14, 16 hours a day, six days a week. And, I mean, I it, it's just miserable. It's it's really a tough thing to do, especially when you're starring in it. I was in every scene, so I never got a break. I, I There's parts of me that wish I'd never done it, but uh, I did the best I could, and which I I just look at the job and say I, I do my job and do the best I can. And. You know, and I, I Brandon Tartikoff, who happened to be the head of NBC at the time, and and I went to a Dodger game with him, and I I said, why why don't you put us on Thursday night or Wednesday night and let us get an audience? You're putting us on Friday against Dallas. We don't have a prayer. And he said, well, you're my best show of the season, so I'm putting you in my toughest time slot. So, I mean, you start to understand that you know television a little bit. I mean. These people that do a hit TV series and they walk around with their head up in the clouds, you, you know, you want to look at them and say, you know, hey, lighten up. You know, you got a good time slot. That's it. You're not the greatest <laughs> actor in the world. You got a good time slot. So chill out, will you? You know, <laughs> so uh, it's it's just uh, that stigma of television. And, and, and I remember Johnny Russo uh, on the pilot was the guest star. and Johnny and I were friends. And Johnny was friends with De Niro. Well, he came to the set to start working, and he had just come back from New York. And he said, yeah, I saw Bobby in New York. And he said, what the hell is John doing a series for? <laughs> and I said, well, they're paying me good money, you know. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of regret it in a way. But, you know, uh, it is what it is, and I have to move on. So it was a good show. It was a good show. And when they we got, we got substituted a few nights, and we were on Wednesday night, and we were like number two in the ratings. But then, we, you know, so it's just all time slots and, you know, all that stuff. It's advertising, and it's a whole different ballgame to me. I mean, anyway, I'd like to stick with stage and film, and that's it. <laughs> but the weird thing is that now it's kind of changed, and you're getting a lot of big names doing TV and just hopping back and forth. I mean, you look at something like Hannibal. You had Mads Mikkelsen, uh, you had uh, Lawrence Fishburne, and and then you've got a whole raft of people doing things like um, NCIS and uh, what's the other one? CSI and... and CSI, yeah. They, I see a lot of guest stars. They do a lot of guest stars on them, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, it's just a pity that he didn't, uh, didn't manage to last, uh, but Hardball was seen as a Lethal Weapon style show, uh, and it's you know it's still being done to this day. Um, was it weird that the the show was kind of aping Lethal Weapon, when at the same time you've come from that background of Beverly Hills Cop? Uh, no, uh, no, you know, I mean it was a buddy movie, you know, I mean, and that that you know that formula has worked for a long time. 
I, I, I didn't feel anything toward Lethal Weapon. I, I liked the show. I thought it was a good movie. <laughs> I, you know, I didn't didn't bother me. You know, they do what I, you know, I do what I do. They do what they do. I liked Lethal Weapon. I, I watched both of them. I, I, the third one was a little weird, but the first two were pretty cool. Sort of like Beverly Hills Cop. The first two were good. Yeah. The third one was weird. You know, so. yeah. <laughs> they played with the cast too much. It's funny enough now that they have done a, a Lethal Weapon series, which is very bizarrely kind of like Hardball in a way. Uh, if you've actually oh, seen yeah. the series, you can actually link it up. It's the same kind of thing. But uh, the difference being, I mean, your character was apparently modeled after Pete Rose. Pete Rose. Is that right? Yeah. I read somewhere online that, that your character in Hardball was apparently uh, patterned after uh, Pete Rose. Yeah. Well, I never heard that, but anyway, that's cool. No, they never, never told, told you. Me. <laughs> but were you were you a baseball fan? Oh yeah, I'm a big. I played baseball. I played little league ball, and actually went to the state championships as a pitcher. So um, yeah, I'm, oh, I'm a big baseball fan. But and I and I think Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame. So <laughs> he should. And, yeah, but I never heard that. Well, he's in the Wrestling uh, Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wrestling Hall of Fame. Yeah, being the rock, right? <laughs> He's in the WWE Hall of Fame. Okay, I, fair enough. I, I, I don't know if you know Goose Gossage. He was a relief pitcher for the Yankees, and he's a friend of mine, and, and uh, he lives in Colorado Springs, actually. And, and uh, I went to his inauguration for the Hall of Fame, and I went into Cooperstown, and they have the big building there with all the stuff, you know. And Pete Rose, they do have a plaque in there. That he that that it's kind of like an uh, uh, what do you call it a, a a sidebar kind of saying he had so many hits and he actually lead led so there is a little plaque that says he had the most hits I mean so there is a little thing about him in the Hall of Fame okay. but which was, I thought was kind of interesting you know uh, the, the you know most hits of anybody you know so but he should be in the Hall of Fame we're gonna have to start a petition. <laughs> um how far through the series were you when you got word that it would only end up having the one season actually we did 18 shows we did the first 13 we did a pilot in 13 and then right around christmas time uh david hemmings who was one of the producers and directed every other episode and david was a good friend of mine david called me over the holidays and said well i got good news and bad news and i said what and he goes the good news is we got picked up for five more shows. And the bad news is we got picked up for five more shows. <laughs> so, I mean, it was as anyway, so we ended up doing 18 episodes. We did another five after that, but uh, then it was, it was canceled. And uh, I remember, I, I'll never forget it. Um, John Ashley was uh, one of the producers on the show and uh, they had one episode where uh, Richard and I go undercover, and they had Richard in a dress. So uh, we go undercover, and he's dressed up as a woman. You know, he's got a dress on and stuff. And it was a pretty funny episode, and uh, Richard refused to wear the dress. He, he refused. He said, no. He said, as long as my father's alive, I'm never putting a dress on, whatever that meant. But uh, I, and I said to him, Richard, come on. And I kept trying to talk him into it. I said, look at man, Tom Hanks wore a dress and look at his career. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, 
come on, man, you know, this is about acting. It has nothing to do with its acting, man. And he refused to do it. So when we got the word from the network that we got canceled, John Ashley looked at Richard and said, if you'd have put that damn dress on, we'd still be on the air. <laughs> it worked for Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I know. Come on, man. I kept telling him, you're an actor, man. You got to do this. And then I offered to do it. I said to John, I said, I'll, I'll do it. I'll put the dress on. And he goes, no, no, you can't do it. You can't do it. Oh, that would have been funny, especially if you kept the mustache. I know. I know. But I, no, well, you know. <laughs> well, in 1991, uh, you made a small uncredited appearance in John Hughes' last movie, Curly Sue. Uh, so how did this come about? Was this a, a favor to John? Yeah, because I had done two films for him. Uh, I did Some Kind of Wonderful for him. And uh, She's Having a Baby with Kevin Bacon. And uh, he just called me out of the blue and said, hey, would you do a little cameo for me on this? And and I said, sure. And I flew to Chicago for a day and did it. And it was just a favor of John. You know, I mean, John and I got along great. And he was famous for that. If you see Trains, Planes, and Automobiles, mm. Kevin Bacon does a cameo in the beginning of that. Yeah. Where he beats uh, Steve Martin out of the cab, you know. It was fun. And I actually, Kelly Lynch, who I, I did the cameo with, I did one scene with her in that film. About uh, six months or eight months after that, maybe a year, I get a call to do a, a pilot for a series, and uh, it was with Kelly Lynch. And Kelly wanted me to do the... So I did the pilot, and uh, it never sold, but uh, anyway. Okay, then, well, in 1993, you once again don a uniform to play Trooper Butcher Duggan in the Stephen King miniseries, The Tommy Knockers, uh, which has gone on to cult status now. And yeah. although it was set in Maine, as many of Stephen King's stories are, it was actually shot in New Zealand. So how was the shift to shooting in such a gloriously scenic country? Well, it, I loved it over there. I, uh, I had a great time in uh, Auckland. You know, it was uh, it was different. You know, it was like I, 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 it was beautiful country. I mean, you get outside of the city and the countryside's gorgeous, and uh, the people there were 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 pretty boisterous and they were pretty nice. And um, you know, and I played golf one day with Cliff the Young and something I'd never seen before. It said, beware of quicksand. And I went, oh, my God. <laughs> never saw that before on a golf course. Oh, those traps are getting worse, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, don't hit it. Don't hit it left. Don't hit it left. Uh, anyway. Um, but I had, I had a great time in Auckland. I made some friends over there. And, uh, yeah, it was fun. You know, the film was, it was pretty interesting. You know, Jimmy Smits and Mark Helgenberger and, Myself, Eli Wallach. Uh, anyway, we had a good time. Only six years before Lord of the Rings as well. Right. Yes. Yes, true. <laughs> Apparently, um, uh, this was down to, at the time, I guess it was cheaper to film in New Zealand instead of the US. Was it originally set to be filmed in the US at any point? Um, that I don't know. but And I really don't know why they went to New Zealand. I, I assume it's budget-wise. Because it was a four-hour miniseries, two two-hour uh, miniseries, so uh, we were there for a while, and uh, and I'm I'm assuming it was all budget, you know, the same reason everybody was going to Canada for a while, because you got great tax breaks and stuff like that. So I'm assuming that's what it was, but you know, 
What do I know? I'm just a dumb actor. They tell me where to go, I go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't ask those questions. Wait, why are you going to New Zealand, by the way? <laughs> I think a lot of actors could probably say the same thing. Oh, we're uh, filming in Ontario, but it's supposed to be like the Sahara Desert. Okay, whatever. You can make it work. Oh, sure. Well, look at Yellowstone. It's supposed to be Montana, but they're shooting in Utah, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, not a, not anymore. They finally moved it to Montana because their their tax breaks ran out in Utah or something. I don't know. But, uh... Around this time, Beverly Hills Cop Three is being primed, which we did discuss on your last visit. But you had committed to Little Big League, so right. take part. Uh, now, this was a movie where you got to reunite with Midnight Runs Dennis Farina, and you have a real fondness for this movie. So, uh, sports centered movies a personal favorite for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, man, look at look at Kevin Costner. How many sports movies he's done? You know, I mean, uh, I mean, he's done a ton of them. He's done baseball. You know, uh, uh, he just did one about uh, the draft in the in the in football, and uh, it was called the draft, I think, actually. And uh, but look how many uh, sports movies Costner has done, hmm. uh, which I and and they're all good. You know, I mean. So I yeah I like sports movies if you know some of them not all of them but you know if they're good I like them but uh, you know there's some of them that are pretty weird but yeah I enjoy and I enjoyed it you know doing doing a little big league you know being on the field and and then meeting all the the professional athletes that came in the professional ball players that came in to do one day cameos in the movie it was a blast, you know. It was just fun meeting all those guys. And, and the funny thing is, Ken Griffey Jr. came in for a day, and he ended up being there for two or three days. And he sort of had an attitude the first couple of hours, you know, when he was there. And he was, but I'll tell you, at at the end of the the first day and the second day, he was he was having a blast with all of us and stuff. And he really fit right in. He was having a great time. But uh, anyway, it was fun. And he had that scene at the end where he where he jumps up on the wall and, and catches the home run and saves the game and all that stuff. And so they did it one time and, all, you know, all they did was throw a ball up there and he had to go up against the wall and catch it. And, and uh, so he did it and they said, okay, that's good. Let's go. And he said, no, no, I'll do it again. Let me do it again. <laughs> and the producers went, no, 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 we got it. We got it. He goes, no, I want to do it again. So he did it like three or four times, you know, and the producers were freaking out thinking, man, if he twists an ankle or something and ruins his career, we're going to, you know, get sued by the Seahawks or something, you know, or the, uh, yeah, the Mariners. <laughs> I mean. Anyway, it was pretty funny. Well, speaking of pretty funny, uh, let's get a bit festive. In 1994, you returned to work with our mutual friend, George Gallo in the Christmas caper trapped in paradise. Now right. I have a soft spot for this movie. And from speaking mm -hmm. with George last night, it was quite a surprise that it was actually not as fun a movie as it looks on screen. <laughs> it was brutal. It was probably the toughest movie I've ever done. It was, it was, uh, actually I, George called me when I was doing a little big league. I was in Minnesota and George called me and said, Hey man, would you, I want you to do this movie. And, and I said, all right. So right after little big league, I went and uh, did uh, uh, trapped in paradise. And, and literally I, we finished little big league, like in November 
And uh, in December, I was in Canada shooting Trapped in Paradise like a month later. And it was like the coldest winter in Canada that they had in like 200 years or something. And it was brutal. <laughs> it, was, it was brutal. 20, 20 below, 25 below. And, you know, the cameras would freeze and uh, we were all bundled up. And, and you know, and, it would, and Niagara on the lake is beautiful. And, uh, and we filmed all over Canada, but mainly we filmed there. And uh, it was actually snowing. But the camera wasn't reading the snow. So they put these fake snow potato uh, things, you know, in a, in a snow machine, you know, where they uh, potato flakes, you know, so the camera would pick up the snow and then it would mix with the then it would mix with the real snow. And it was like, uh. walk, then it was like walking in mashed potatoes, man. <laughs> it was like cause it was it was unbelievable. It was just and it was so cold and oh. Man, it was it was the toughest shoot I've ever been on. It was brutal, <laughs> but it was fun. Like it. But it was fun, you know. <laughs> so now I'm shooting this thing in 1994 with with Lovitz, right? And he's in the back seat, and in between takes, he looks at me and he goes, "Well, John, how is it working with me again?" <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I, "I said, well, John, uh, since I worked with you last, I worked with De Niro." Uh, Gerard Depardieu, uh, <laughs> uh, Eddie Murphy, and now I'm working with you again. I think my career's going downhill. <laughs> uh, well, fun. apparently, according to John Lovitz, the cast was so burnt out on the movie that they nicknamed it Trapped in Bullshit. <laughs> Is that right? It might be. I, I never heard it, but I don't. I don't doubt it. <laughs> it was, it was, I'm telling you, it was. Uh, we were trapped, I'll tell you, but it wasn't paradise. <laughs> but George, George was great. George was great. I love George. You know, I mean, we were friends from the night run and stuff. So, ask George when you talk to George. Ask him about our our train trip from Flagstaff to L.A. at Christmas time. <laughs> oh, I'll be. I'm noting George, that one down now. Oh yeah, we had you know we had a Christmas break uh, and we were in Flagstaff, so we had a week off for Christmas. And George won't fly, you know, so he was going to take the train from Flagstaff to L.A. And I said, "Well, I'll take the train with you." So we took the the, the overnight train from Flagstaff to L.A. and it was a blast. Well, moving on, you escaped paradise, and uh, in 1995, uh, you actually co-starred in a little movie that I remember, but I don't think many people would remember. And it's a movie where you acted as the partner of Dolph Lundgren. And it was a movie called The yes. Shooter, or Hidden Assassin in some countries. Right, right. They, they kept changing it. Yeah, it was directed by First Blood's Ted Kotcheff. And this was somewhat of a more serious role in comparison to your kind of lovable characters. Uh, what appealed about this project? Well, uh, Ted Kotcheff got a hold of me, and, and actually, Ted was one of the producers on SVU Law and Order oh. that I did. Ted, Ted wanted me to do. He was trying to find a role for me that would be an extended role on SVU, but it never was. But anyway, uh, Ted got a hold of me, and they sent me the script, and we shot it in Prague. And uh, and, and Dolph was great to work with. We had a great time, and. Uh, it, it, I, it was a very underrated movie. I don't think it really got the publicity it, it should have gotten, but because uh, it was a pretty cool movie, you know. And Prague was just unbelievable to work in. I, what a beautiful city. 
I think it's a better movie. I think it should have been, you know, yeah, it been is out a there movie. more. But you know, yeah, but you know, I mean, that's that's the thing with acting. You're gonna you go do your job, and then you don't know what they're gonna studio's gonna do with it. I got a good friend of mine who was a terrific musician, and he got signed by a studio to, to as their first artist, and he laid down this album with all these great musicians and stuff. And then they never released it, and they the 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 uh, recording end of the studio went defunct, and his album to this day sits on a shelf somewhere, no. and they won't sell it, they won't they won't give it to anybody else because they don't want to you know get fired for giving up a hit album, and that album to this day sits on the shelf at that studio, so you never know you you go do your work and then you leave it all up to these guys to determine where your career goes. <laughs> <laughs> so dead quick one um were you present for Dolph's hamstring injury during the shooting and did it affect the way that the movie was made moving forwards yeah uh i was and I, no man he was a trooper man uh, he you know he actually i don't know if you remember the scene but we're inside the apartment and yeah. he actually went out on that ledge you know he went out on a ledge to shoot that scene and I wouldn't do it, but you know he. You know they had stunt guys to do it. And he said, "Speaking of stunt guys, this one stunt guy almost killed me on that movie. He was a this, you know, he was a Czech guy. He didn't speak English, and we had a fight in the in the wine cellar. I don't know if you remember that fight yeah. I had in the wine cellar with that big guy. Well, this guy was a he was just a big guy. He was a wrestler, I think, in in Czechoslovakia or something. So they had him come in to do this scene." And they yelled action. And this guy tackled me and squeezed my chest. I thought I was going to die. I mean, this guy almost killed me. <laughs> so I, I finally, I looked at Ted and I said, would you tell somebody, tell him this, we're acting. We're <laughs> acting here. <laughs> this guy's going to kill me. <laughs> Apparently, um, Miramax, who are distributing the film, uh, I hear that they cut something like 15 minutes of character development from that movie prior to its release. Did your scenes suffer as a result from that? Um, I don't remember that, but I don't, you know what? I don't, I don't even think I have a copy of that movie, so I should probably get one somewhere. See, I don't see my movie, so, you know, I see them once and that's it. And if there's no premiere, I, I don't know if I'll ever see it. There's stuff I've done that I've never seen. Are you are you one of these actors that don't like seeing themselves on screen, or is it just that once you've seen it, it's like okay, there, I'm done. And well, it's a no, I don't, I don't. Um, I'm too critical, you know. I'm, uh, I, I just, I see things that I should have done, or I'm, I'm, I'm too critical. I, I, it bothers me, so I, you know, I see it once and I go, okay, that's it. And, and I remember the first film I did. I was in, still in theater school at USC and. Some independent producer wanted me to do this film, and I, it was a terrible movie. It never got released, but I had never done film before. I was doing theater all the time, so it was a good experience. I wanted the experience to learn how to, to do film. And in those days, they had dailies because everything was on film, and then they would develop the film, and then the next day they would watch it, the, what the stuff we shot the day before. And they had all the scenes. There, there wasn't cut. It was just, you know, everything that was shot. And the director said, you want to come to the dailies? And I said, yeah, that'd be cool, you know, because I was trying to learn. And I sat there and watched every take. And some of them were horrid. 
And uh, and I just looked at that and I'm like, oh my God, I'll never work in this business again. Oh my God. <laughs> I was just I was so depressed and I was just going, oh no, I'll never do so I've never done that again. And Marty Bress, when we were doing Beverly Hills Cop, he asked me one day, You want to come to Dailies? I said, No, Marty, I don't do that. And blah blah blah. And then uh finally my last scene that I shot in Cop and I was finished on the film. And Marty said, you want to go to Daly's now? And I said, okay, I'm done on the film, so I don't care. So, you know, and I, I, I sat there for like five minutes and left. But uh, no, I just, uh, I'm too critical. You know, I'm, 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 I see things I should have done or, or shouldn't have done. And mm. why didn't I do this? And I, I think I told you, I, I, I gave that line to Anthony Hopkins, you know, uh, uh, acting 101, you know, that's when you yeah. think, think of all the things you should have done on the 101 freeway in Hollywood, you know, so. <laughs> I've seen it once. I can't change it. It's over. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you brought up Anthony Hopkins. Sir Anthony Hopkins, yes. Um, because uh, he's a very Shakespearean actor. Uh, now, but can you remember the classic Hamlet line from the film that Andrew just seems to quote at least once a month when suitable? <laughs> from the shooter. No. Yeah. It's one of my favourite sayings. Uh, that was delivered by John Ashton in the movie. And I've used this line for so many people. And uh, it's a line where John says, you know, the only time self-doubt is useful when you're starring fucking Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> and that is one of John Ashton's lines from the shooter. And I, I have used that line so many times to give people. I don't even remember. Oh, really? Now, what's the line again? What's the line? I don't remember that. What's the line again? Yeah, the only time self doubt is useful is when you're starring in fucking Hamlet, and it's something <laughs> you, you and Dolph Lundgren are in a car, uh, just driving along, <laughs> and it's a line that you say, and that line stayed with me forever. That's one of the best lines I've ever. That's a good line. I'll have to remember that. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to have to go and find the movie again now. Yeah. Even I want to watch it again. So, yeah. I'm going to have to get a copy of the movie to see it, I guess. Right? So what were you we going to say about uh, Anthony Hopkins? No, it was that was just a segue to get onto Hamlet. Oh, 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 nice, oh. nice segue. He's a, he's a very Shakespearean actor, yes. <laughs> Well, I thought you were going to go into uh, instinct, but that's later oh, on. Yeah. Right? We're, yes. we're getting there, but we've got a few more stops on this journey. Some you might not want to take, but we'll take them anyway. Uh, <laughs> so around the time of the shooter, you also appeared in the incredibly popular show Jag in the same year. I think it was only for one episode. And I bring this up because uh, you shared the episode with Tracy Needham, who played Meg Austin. And I've got to say, hi, Tracy, and your husband, Tommy Hinckley, as well. And Tracy. Hi, Tracy and Tommy. Yeah. <laughs> so, Tracy, we would love to see you here one week. But how was Jag as a gig? Uh, I loved it. I had a great time. And I, I don't know, this is a piece of trivia. You know, the character that Mark Harmon plays on, on CSI or whatever yeah, yeah, that is, N C I S. that was the, my character. No. That was my character in Jag. Oh, <laughs> and that, that, that's a that's a piece of trivia that, that I read somewhere. And it said, do you know that Mark Harmon's character was actually created by John Ashton on an episode of Jag? Oh, my. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. It's a Jaggy verse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Eat that, Marvel. Jag did it first. 
<laughs> that's great hey I, I could just imagine that actually you know you playing the the gibbs role in ncis going forward i could easily picture that yeah yeah on, on jag i play the uh the ncis guy hit that that guy and then they did the series and mark Harmon did it and it was the same producer and I want to call a producer. I said, why don't you give me the series instead of Mark Harmon? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. And I, I never I never knew that. I read that in a newspaper somewhere, that that, that role was originally made by me. So. Wow. You know what? Now that that's been brought up, we need somebody to substantiate this. So if you are listening to this and you worked on that episode of JAG, we want to hear from you. Yes. <laughs> Clear it up. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to hear too. Yeah. Well, Going from something that you love to hear about to one you probably prayed we would not bring up, but here we are. Uh-oh. John, meet the Deedles. <laughs> Yikes. Yikes. <laughs> that, goes, that, goes, that goes right in there with the last resort, I think. <laughs> kind, of uh, one I don't talk, kind of one I don't talk about too much, you know. Uh, well, you know, it also kind of ties in with uh, Tammy and the T-Rex from Ellen Dubin's episode. You know, how many <laughs> movies are we going to bring up from Paul Walker's early days that make them wish that we did? Paul, Paul was a great guy, you know, so Meet the Deedles is, yeah, that goes along with King Kong lives in the last resort and stuff. So. Anyway, I can't believe um, what happened, John? I can't believe we forgot about <laughs> King Kong lives. We need to go back to the 80s quick. <laughs> yeah. No. No, I... I uh, we skimmed over that kind of nicely, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were being kind to me by skipping it. So, so, John, did you love King Kong Lives? I look at my house and think, yes, I love King Kong Lives. <laughs> <laughs> It's like that story that uh, Dennis Hopper used to say about why he took the part of Cooper. Oh, in Super Mario Brothers. In, uh, yeah. Super Mario Brothers. And he said that he, he, his six-year-old son came to him say one day and said, Dad, why were you in that terrible movie? And he said, well, it was so that I could buy you shoes. And his son apparently looked back up at him and went, I don't need shoes that bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that's kind of like hardball. You know, I kept thinking, well, that'll put my kid through college. So, well, you know. Uh, but uh, meet the Deedles. That was uh, we shot that in Utah, and uh, it was uh, not very good. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Walker, every, the cast, everybody was great, and and Steve Boyum, the the director, he was he actually one of my stunt guys on Hardball. The director oh, nice. of Meet the Deedles, yeah. So, uh, but I, I, we had a great time, you know. And same thing with King Kong Lives. We had a great time shooting it. I mean, Wilmington, Delaware, or Wilmington, North Carolina was great. Uh, Utah was great. You know, I mean, we had a great time shooting it, but uh, you know, it didn't come out very well. But, but I mean, I, I had, I had the, you know, and I'm not crazy about heights, and I had to repel off of this cliff and, and meet the Deedles, and mm. and and I, you know, and it, and that was like a 500 foot cliff. I mean, it was it was a cliff. It wasn't just a little drop. It was a cliff. And I had a couple of lines of dialogue with uh, with Paul. I think it was Paul or Steve, either one. So I had to do it. So uh, for two days, the stunt guys brought me out and taught me how to repel and get the rope right and do all that stuff on this little rock, you know. So then the, the day came that I had to do it. And, uh, and I said, you know, okay. And 
So I got and they had set up the a, a plank with the with the cameras and everything about halfway down the cliff. So we had to repel all the way down there and then do our dialogue and everything. Anyway, I get to the top of the cliff and I I start to look down and the stunt guy goes, "Don't look, don't look, just jump, just jump." <laughs> and it was the, I would I couldn't sleep for two days before that. It was. The same thing happened in King Kong Lives. I had a scene with Linda Hamilton out on the edge of this cliff, and they had a helicopter over us and a rain machine blowing on us. And it was about a thousand foot cliff. We were shooting in the Smokies in Tennessee, and I and I and I was scared to death. I mean, scared to death. Uh, it's hey, it's, it's yeah. fun. <laughs> That's all I'm gonna say. No, it wasn't fun at all. <laughs> And when that helicopter, and we were right on the edge of the cliff, and we had dialogue, and, the, and this rain machine hit us. And I had read an article that uh, Kurt Russell had to do a, a scene in the rain, and he insisted that they heat the water. And I thought, oh, man, give me a break. Heat the water. What are you, crazy? Come on, man. Man up. Man up. You know, heat the water. So now I'm doing this scene on this rock, this cliff, and, and King Kong lives and they got the water out of this spring well down below. And man, that water hit me and it freeze, I froze. <laughs> I mean, I, I, might, I couldn't even talk. I went, oh my God, oh. So then I, all of a sudden I went, Kurt, I learned something from you now, man. I know what you're saying now. And it was, and then the helicopter starts blowing and the whole cliff starts shaking. And, oh, it was miserable. It was miserable. <laughs> well, in speaking of Meet the Deedles, obviously it was one of Paul Walker's early movies around right. Tommy and the T-Rex. But sadly, it was the last for another cinematic icon. This was the last movie for Bart the Bear, the bald-headed right. killer bear of Clare County. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Right. Yeah, so uh, what memories do you have of both talents who sadly left us? Uh, yeah, Bart the Bear was, you know, we shot some scenes, uh, you know, with the bear. and But they had uh, these invisible kind of electric fences around. So he he could only go certain places, but uh, he was really cool. And, and then Anthony Hopkins and I, he worked with Bart the Bear on the Edge. Oh yeah! So we, we we were talking about Bart the Bear, and he said, "Yeah, I work with Bart the Bear on the Edge," and blah blah blah. So <laughs> we, anyway, we talked. We're, we'll talk about that later. But anyway, um, yeah, he was great. I mean, he was really a smart bear. What could I say? <laughs> <laughs> was it was it nerve wracking being that close to such a big animal? It, a- yeah. It's, it was a little scary, but, you know, I mean, he was so smart and so be, his behavior was, you know, I don't know, who who knows. I guess they could snap any time. But, but they had, like I say, they had these uh, invisible wire fences around so he could only go a certain distance, you know. Yeah, at least that's what they told us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some of those guys lie to you, you know, so you'll do stuff that you shouldn't be doing. <laughs> Oh, don't worry about it. It's totally safe. Don't worry about it. (laughs) For an actor, uh, and I can also speak from this myself, the ability to play someone real and historic is taken a lot more seriously. So for you, it would be the role of Ulysses Grant in the day that Lincoln was shot. Now, did you change the way you researched for the role, or how did you approach this differently? 
Uh, well, I, I, of course, I read up on on Grant, you know, and uh, and their relationship, his relationship with Lincoln and stuff. So, uh, uh, and Lance uh, Hendrickson, who played Lincoln, you know, we talked about their relationship a lot. And I actually, I wish I had more to do on the film and was a little more extensive than that. But, uh, but um, yeah, he was uh, a, a pretty iconic uh, individual, Grant, and. Uh, I, you know, I tried to do as much as I could to look like him, and then, and I, I changed my voice a little bit because he was a heavy cigar smoker, so I tried to do that, and I just tried to work on different aspects of his personal life that carried over into his professional life. You know. Well, I think we've kind of got to round out the '90s here. Obviously, uh, on our journey, talking about John Turtletub's instinct where you were starring alongside Anthony Hopkins, uh, who was an Oscar winner, a uh, recent Oscar winner then, Cuba Gooding Jr., and, of course, mm-hmm. you had Donald Sutherland as well. I mean, you, mm. <laughs> this is probably one of the most impressive casts for you to to come in and work around. How, how has this project landed on your doorstep? Well, John Turtletob, who directed it, uh, his favorite movie of all time was Midnight Run. He, they called and uh, he wanted to meet me. And and uh, so I went in for the meeting. I had read the script and I read the book. Uh, on, I can't remember the name of the oh, book Ishmael. that it was taken from. but Ishmael, yeah. right. So I read the book and I did all my homework and stuff. And I had a really, a really hard time justifying my hatred toward Hopkins in the film. And, um, and I, I literally, I stayed up till three or four in the morning the, the night before my meeting with John and everybody else. And I, I kept racking it through my head. I mean, what justifies me being so mean to this guy? And uh, I finally came up with the answer to myself. So I go into the meeting and John, you know, just, couldn't stop talking about Midnight Run and I love that movie and God, you were great in that movie and there's not a single frame that's bad in that movie. And I mean, he just loved the movie so much. And then he says, so, well, let's talk about this film. (laughs) So (laughs) I said, okay. So we started talking about it. And I mean, there must've been probably 15 people in the room, which you don't have anymore, by the way. But anyway, there, you know, there were all the writers and, and everybody else and John and, and I said, you know, I, I said I, I, I was having a hard time justifying my my hatred toward this character, and I finally figured it out. And Turtle Tub said, "What?" And I said, "He is the silverback gorilla, and I'm the silverback gorilla in this prison, and these are my herd, and he's a silverback trying to take over my herd, and that's how I justify my hatred toward him." And Turtle Tom stands up in the middle of the room and he says, that is officially now my idea. <laughs> <laughs> so I got the role just from that. So um, uh, we went to Florida to shoot it. And uh, my first day of work was with uh, with with Hopkins and, and Cuba. And uh, we had a scene together. And so I walked in and I just said, <laughs> All right, is it Cuba or Cuba? And he says it's Cuba. 
I said, all right. I said, is it Sir Anthony, Mr. Hopkins? And he looked at me, he goes, it's Tony. And I went, all right, I'm John. Let's go to work. <laughs> so, and, and, and Tony and I got along, and he was just great. But, you know, I was on the movie for 10 weeks, so we sat around and told stories and stuff. He, he was fantastic. He was fantastic. And we got a great time. And, and I, the funny thing is there's a scene in the movie where uh, Hopkins is is drawing in his cell, and he's got this huge mural in the cell that it, that he's painted. So they go out to the yard for their exercise, and I go in and whitewash the whole thing. And uh, he so he comes back in, and there's this one shot, and it's it's him sitting in the cell with all the white walls, and I just walk over to the bars. And I look through them, and there's just a stare between the two of us. There's no dialogue. And it's just me looking at him saying, you know, up yours, pal. You know, one of those looks, you know. So uh, it's just us glaring at one another. So the first take, I walk in, go up to the bars. He looks at me. I look at him. We're staring at one another. And he finally goes, hello, Clarice. You're looking very butch today. (laughs) 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 well the whole crew just cracked up laughing you know so i mean that's the way tony was he he was a lot of fun he's a fun guy so hello clarice you're looking very butch today (laughs) and i suppose obviously you've got um cuba there as well and i think right around the time probably you were going uh, into production, I think his Oscar win was like so fresh, right? Uh, and he was obviously a right. big name. How many of you shouted "Show me the money" to him? No, I don't think we ever did. <laughs> no. I don't think maybe once. You know, I mean, he 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 had had enough of that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, judging by the kind of person like Tony sounds, I'm sure that he must have got him with at least one "Show me the money" at some point. Oh, probably he did. He probably did. He probably, but you know, Tony, they were great. Tony was great, and you know, Cuba and I got along great. And we had, and there were some scenes cut out. We we had a scene where where uh, Cuba, where uh, Tony escapes, and then Cuba and I go out looking for him, and we're in the the uh, the brush and all this stuff. Well, we were shooting in Florida, and and they they were wanted to shoot this in this real jungly kind of this thing where and then cuba and i were, were kind of going through the bushes and and it's like one o'clock in the morning or something so they got the the snake wranglers in there right to to clear out all the snakes where we had to shoot so <laughs> so cuba and i are sitting in our chairs you know and finally these guys walk out of the jungle where they were and, and they said okay it's all clear and we looked at one another and went, yeah, right. You got all the snakes out of there, didn't you? I'm sure you got all the snakes out of there. I could just picture that. Just like, yeah, it's all clear. And both of you just went, bullshit. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, right. You got all the snakes out of there, right. And it was it was not fun laying down in that jungly stuff. Uh, we had a couple of lines of dialogue and stuff, but they cut it out of the film. But- the gorillas were really... Um- Really authentic looking. I didn't actually realize at first that they were actually people in suits. And one of them was actually Vern Troyer, who played uh, the baby gorilla. And he really? he went on to do um, 
Minimi as Austin Powers pretty much in the same year. Right, right. Yeah, that, those guys, those suits were unbelievable. I mean, you, I mean, you'd be two feet from them, and you'd swear they were gorillas. They were unbelievable. The the makeup and stuff was fantastic. I guess it was kind of the Planet of the Apes of its day. <laughs> yeah. No, but they and, and these guys walked like that. I mean, they had it down. I mean, you'd swear they were real. They, they was great. Yeah, where is Andy Serkis when you need him? <laughs> <laughs> At least it wasn't the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes. Yes. But that's a different story altogether. Yes. <laughs> John's there on set saying, if we had this in King Kong Lives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. I could have bought two houses. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I broke my ribs in King Kong Lives on that tank. You know? Oh, my God. They had the... Well, they had the fake arm, you know, the fake yeah. gorilla arm, you know, and it was supposed to be hitting me on top of that. And they kept shooting that scene. And every time it hit me, my ribs would go into the turret of the tank, you know, and I, I ended up busting three ribs. And oh, so I, I, I said to one of the stunt guys, I said, well, you know, what do you take for that? And they went, grin and bear it, man. Grin and bear it. <laughs> I just said and, to uh, Jessica Lange, grin and bear it, because I bet it was a lot smoother with her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it was. Oh, as always, I mean, we we can talk about your career always, and we kind of want to break off on uh, the '90s because we want definitely want to bring you back again to talk about the 2000s. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's another 20 years there, which is just <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah, and another two hours worth of material. <laughs> 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 we, we we love having you on. Yeah. It's, it is amazing, and it flows so easy. I got some films out now. I'd like to talk about too, but we can talk about that later. Yes. Well, at the moment, we've got to talk about this week's Nominate 5, Steve. Now's the time to nominate 5. Nominate 5? Yes, nominate 5. Not 3, or 4, or 6, or 9. Now's the time to nominate 5. Does that sound quieter to you, or is that just me? That sounded a bit... No, that was pretty loud to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I forgot that John didn't have the music last time that we recorded the episodes. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> I'm sorry for blowing out your eardrums there, John. I really no, am. I, I, I'm deaf anyway, so it's pretty hard to do that. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Shooting all those guns over the years without earplugs, you know, kind of screwed up my ears. So. <laughs> well, for um, for nominate five this week, I wanted to do a bit something a bit different with you, John. Uh, to really kind of go back because your love of theater and when we were actually speaking on the first episode you know your love of theater was very apparent so for your nominate Mm -hmm. five on this occasion i wanted to ask you of your top five favorite on stage roles my role yes uh well number one has got to be true west with ed harris ed harris and i did true west in 1981 and uh, and uh, we both won the Drama Critics Awards for it because it's basically a two character play, so they gave it to both of us because they couldn't. You know. <laughs> so um, we did that at South Coast Rep in L.A. And Sam Shepard came closing night. I don't, did I tell this story? I don't know if I told this story. Yeah, but tell it again. Tell it again. Go on. About about Ed choking me at the end of the show. <laughs> no, I, no, I, you I, didn't I mention that. You. Well, anyway. Sam Shepard had walked out of the original production in New York. So every, the closing weekend, 
Friday night, they said, Sam's in the audience. So we went, we freaked out, of course, and, and, and then we did the whole show. But And it, and it was a good show, and, and he wasn't there. I make a long story short, he did come closing the last performance Sunday night. And at the end of the, at the end of the play, Eddie wraps a phone cord around my neck and starts strangling me. Well, we had it worked out where he could, because he's behind me and can't see me. We had it worked out where I could get my fingers in between my neck and the cord and he could squeeze as hard as he want and I could hold it with my fingers. Well, closing night, <laughs> he missed my neck and got it around my lip, <laughs> right around, around my mouth. So he's tugging it, and I couldn't grab the cord, and he rips my lips. I mean, just mm. tore my lips, and blood went everywhere. <laughs> so we're we're bad, and it wasn't it wasn't his fault, you know. It was just one of those accidents, you know. So uh, we're backstage in our dressing room after, and Sam came back, and he said, "Oh, what a great performance!" And he was really really kind to us. And then he looks at me, and I you know I was wiping my blood off and stuff, and Sam goes. How did you guys do that every night? <laughs> <laughs> so we had to tell him it was an accident, Sam. You know, thank God it was a closing performance. But anyway, okay. Uh, True West has to be one of my favorites. Um, a View from the Bridge. Okay. I, play, I played Tony Carbone in that. Um, God, there's so many of them. Uh, I uh, Huey. Uh, Eugene O'Neill play I did at, at the Edinburgh Arts Festival in Scotland. So we need two more from you. Skip Hampton and uh, the last meeting of the Knights of the White Magnolia we did at the Coronet Theater for nine months in L.A. It was a big hit play. And Skip Hampton was a lot of fun to play. And I guess maybe Camille in A Flea in Her Ear, a Fado French farce. I did that at the Company of Angels in L.A., and I actually won the Drama Critics Award for Best Supporting Actor for that. So, Wow. Wow, awesome. Well, there you go. Yeah, nine months is a long run. That's a very long run. <laughs> that was in 1973 I did that. Well, that's great. That's, that's five great choices. We kind of stepped away from movies for it, but all the more impressive to know that You've suffered for your art at the hands of Ed Harris. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ed, you know, Ed and I had, were we were in a theater group uh, at the Met Theater in L.A. So Eddie and I have known each other for thirty-five years. So, and we did Gone Baby Gone together too. Yes, so. and that, that'll be coming up for the next yeah. time that we have you. So, yes, I, yes, I know. That's two thousand. Yeah. That okay. ended up in the box, didn't it? That got pulled. Yes, out. it did. Oh yeah, you yes, seen- it did. I forgot. Yes, I've he, seen one. Yes, because you hadn't yeah, seen I re- it. I remember that. John was on. So now you've seen yeah. it. So now you can give your, you know, your little bit of feedback. Yeah, great. Uh, what, now? No, no, no. When we get to the 2000s, yeah, when that yeah, comes yeah. up. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. No. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, that was, I'm, I'm sure I was, was kind to that movie. I really was. Yes. There was, uh, that, that was 2006, so that's another episode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, John, uh, what have you got coming up? Uh, have you got any movies that are due to be released? Or are you going to uh, work yeah, on anything? Uh, there's one on Netflix now that I did with Bruce Dern called Death in Texas. Cool. And a movie I did uh, a couple years ago uh, called Once Upon a River. It was taken from a book. I play a hermit that lives on the river. A very different character for me who takes in this young girl, a runaway girl, and 
and uh, they both help each other out. And it's a really nice story. So um, I'm talking to a producer now about directing a film. So uh, we'll see what happens with that. Cool. I'll send you my CV. (laughs) (laughs) You heard him typing out before. That was his rejection letter already. (laughs) (laughs) Never in a million years. Well, well, I I will warn you to uh, turn your volume down because there is one more bit of music coming up. But... um, Okay, but no, that is fantastic. We're gonna go and watch them, and because we want to talk about them on the next time we have you on, I think we've got to mm-hmm. have you back for season three. Uh, <laughs> you might end up being a recurring guest on every season, we'll just bring you in. I know, so uh, well, I, well I, I, I know the check's in the mail, so that's okay. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Just remember, don't cash it until the year 3000. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. All right. <laughs> cash it when you get your first Beverly Hills Cop 4 check. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Still waiting to hear on that. That's another thing that's in the horizon. So, God. Waiting on that. Come on, Netflix. You know better. Yeah, really. Come on. Really? Well, hopefully. Hopefully Netflix, they'll do Amazon, the right thing. Well, someone. Well, it has been an absolute joy having you back on, John. And like Andy said, you know, Hopefully we can get you back for season three, talk your way through the 2000s and beyond. Uh, for now, though, thank you very much. Well, thank um, you, guys. It's always a pleasure. You know that. Hang on, you got one more section yet, Steve. Play the music. Oh. I was hoping you would have forgotten about that one. No. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Wow, that music gets absolutely amazing every single time, Steve. <laughs> yes, it does, Andrew, yes. Especially when you queue it up the first time and we don't fix it in post. Anyway, what is What's in the Box about? Okay, What's in the Box is the part of the show where Andy just tries to drag me away from my Xbox, which actually I don't get much time to play these days, um, and tries to improve my movie education by pulling out the name of a film from a box which is going to be certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, Don't pull out Last Resort. <laughs> I don't even resort. think that's going in the box. I don't. No, I don't even think that's in print anymore. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, but if I have seen the movie, then we just keep pulling out names of movies until we find one that I haven't seen, and then I have to go away and watch it the night before we record our next episode. So, Andy, yes, what do you have for me this week? Well, I've got a nice. Please be a short one. Uh, 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 it is kind of a short one. It's a nice festive one. Uh, it's the original 1973 movie, The Wicker Man. You've not seen it, have you? <laughs> I have seen it. Oh, you have seen it. Oh, well. I have actually oh seen The Wicker God. Man. I'm amazed. Yeah, the original one, Christopher Lee. Yes. Okay. You know. Edward Woodward. Iwa Wuwa. <laughs> I've seen it, yeah. Okay. Well, your second one is a 2005 movie called Brick with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. No, I haven't seen that one. Okay. Well, that's what you're watching over Christmas. Oh, you're going to enjoy that. Okay. It's a good thriller. So I, I'm, awesome. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is Christmas and uh, we want to thank you for tuning in on your Christmas week. Uh, we want to thank John for joining us on Christmas week, or at least a couple of weeks before. It's always a pleasure having you here. And the good news is that in the new year, we at Partywood have a little gift for everyone. 
don't we, Steve? Yes. Because we had to go and do a bit of acting, didn't we, Steve? <laughs> yes. And that's all we're going to say on that. You're just going to have to wait until January in our lead into season three. But uh, yeah, and uh, you're going to be able to find it on. Uh, is that going to be going onto the YouTube channel? Uh, it'll be on YouTube. It'll be on the Facebook page. Yeah, but mainly YouTube to share it out. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, we shall let you know. But in the meantime, uh, I guess we're kind of out of here. And you look after yourself, John. Okay. And we will see you again very shortly. Okay, great. And you guys have a great holiday, and all your listeners have a great holiday too. You too. All the best, and enjoy the merriment of the season. And to all of you listening out there in podcast land, the same goes for you. Be safe over Christmas. Enjoy it. Spend some time with your loved ones. Drink some eggnog, or just whiskey. Go out and <laughs> oh, a whiskey. I know what I'm going to be drinking, definitely the whiskey. And stay safe, and we will see you in the new year. Now we've finished our podcast. Ho, ho, ho.